Welcome to Encountering Beauty, a series of podcasts brought to you by Masterpiece London. I'm Thomas Marks, editor of Apollo magazine, and in these podcasts we'll be exploring the enduring relevance and resonance of what have long been some of the most revered and versatile materials that artists have had at their disposal. In each conversation, I'll be joined by two art dealers who exhibit at the leading art fair that is Masterpiece London, experts in slightly different artistic fields that nevertheless share particular materials between them. We'll explore everything from wood to marble and from pigments to precious stones, discussing how artists have handled, worked and transformed these materials and why they're prized by collectors today. Today we'll be hearing about the ancient and enduring craft of ceramics, from the elemental forming and firing of clay that has been advanced by so many civilizations, to the white gold of porcelain and the potters and patrons who have dedicated themselves to its mysteries. I'm delighted to be joined by two London-based specialists in the field, Adrian Sassoon, expert in 18th century French porcelain and contemporary works of art in ceramic, and by Errol Manners of E&H Manners Ceramics and Works of Art, which offers a wide range of pottery and porcelain from European pieces to Middle Eastern, Far Eastern, and Mexican colonial period wares, as well as arts and crafts ceramics. It's great to have both of you with me. Thank you. Good to be here. Let's start off by, by asking both of you, Adrian, perhaps you first, what it is about pottery and porcelain that has sustained your interest in them over your career? Well, I think being able to talk to so many people about it. I'm not on my own. I deal in 18th century pieces, and there are a lot of scholars around, but then I leap to contemporary. And in contemporary field, I talk to artists who make things, used to make things. We see things happening. And because of that, and even trying it myself when I was at school, um, I think that connection with the wet clay leads me to understand the newly made objects much better, talking to those artists, and also to observe how people have done it in past centuries through being very practical in one approach to these objects. That's, I think, the endless surprise. And, and tell me, Adrian, though, you, you mentioned that you worked with wet clay yourself when you were at school. Were you, were you any good at it? They came through the kiln successfully. They're not exactly things you'd sell very well now, but I tried. And I was taught by a brilliant man, Gordon Baldwin, was the pottery master at school, a great abstract ceramic artist who is still alive, elderly. And with other people around, you see them doing things in different techniques. And that's another thing. I look at artists working in various techniques, and I think, I understand that one. That one I could never get my hands on. It helps a lot for understanding historic objects as well. Errol, tell me about what sustained your interest in, in pottery and porcelain. Do, do ceramic works of art still surprise you? Totally. It's a it's never-ending sort of source of surprise. I mean, the variety is so huge. And I would second, Adrian, the little bit of pottery that I did at school has held me in terribly good stead. I could never throw a vessel. And so anyone who can make a flower pot, I have the greatest admiration for. But I think this, this huge variety can take you into every corner of every civilization at every period. And it's like a global history of art in, in miniature, if you like. It, it, it's a, I'll never tire of it. Well, I, I wondered about that. In a sense, it's perhaps one of the most human materials that we work with. In some ways, artists are working with a material that is almost part of a certain number of foundation myths about how, how human life took shape. That's right, isn't it? 
It is. And, you know, that some of the earliest, earliest pots, I think the earliest pot is the, the Venus of Vestonici. And, you you know, that some Neolithic ancestor of ours you know, trod on a riverbed and then the clay squeezed through his toes. And it's plastic and it, it's a child can't not play with a bit of clay like Play-Doh. And he formed a little fertility goddess. You know, it's deep inside us. We talk about human clay. Yes, absolutely. Isn't that how God formed us? Adrian, can you remember, sort of notwithstanding your, your school experiments, whether there was a particular object or work or, or set of works that, that really turned you on to ceramics, as it were? Well, I have to admit it goes back to earlier than school. My, one of my grandmothers collected quite interesting French 18th century porcelain. And so that got me interested in, you know, sort of awareness of what granny had. And then you might sort of see somebody looking with her at her things so that got me sort of like there's france there's the 18th century there's porcelain it was high technology at its time then i'm making things myself and i think i burst out of school as a teenager from family where we all went to museums all the time and just continued the observations of both the old and the new and i don't think they've been particularly related until i started working in those fields but it's very difficult to get interested in something if you don't see it. And so, yes, it's what was around me at those early years of my adulthood. And, and French porcelain is a rather fragile field. But were you allowed to handle any of those things at an early age? No one's asked me that before. And I'm certain that's a simple answer. No, certainly not. And um, It was all for show. It wasn't for teenagers or younger to get their hands on. No way. That was a very fierce grandmother. We were always sitting upright, very smartly dressed and putting our knives and forks in the right place and saying, thank you, Granny. And on retrospect, thank you, Granny, because she was interesting. She was really amazingly good at making you take on board what she was interested in. Not sure that she was very interested in anything else, but what she was interested in herself. But it was worth listening but this fragility, you mentioned this, of porcelain is something that, that doesn't tell the whole story. Actually, in many ways, it's the most durable of all the arts. It's what survives. I mean, all the textiles have gone, all the wood's been eaten by weevils. Mm. And you know, ceramics survives, is indestructible, except until you drop it. But there's more of it around than anything but else. A lot of us love broken pieces as well, because they are special in some colour or some shape or some date some history, even a broken piece can be remarkably exciting. But Errol's hit the spot there. The colours don't change from the moment they're completed in history to the present day. So they do stay looking like they always did. Yeah, that's so important. I mean, you can look at a bit of you know Renaissance Maiolica and you can see it just as Raphael saw it unchanged. You can, you know, very few other things you can say that about. Thinking about what endures, er Errol, was there a, a work for you or a type of work for you that really drew you to the field in the first place? I started working actually for a furniture dealer, a good furniture dealer. And I do remember a moment of revelation for me was at Bermondsey Market, where I bought a, someone had just dropped a, a little Chinese export bowl. And, and I remember it was £11. And I took it home to my, my little sort of modest little bedsit at the time and stuck it together and I couldn't believe that I had in my hands this sort of this thing that uh, some China trade captain had bought over over 200 years ago to England and it was actually beautiful it, it was a marvellous material it was beautifully designed and it seemed to me you know, it was it was the romance of the history and, and combined with its beauty I think 
that little bowl, which sadly I don't know what happened to it actually. But I was going to ask. You haven't still got it? No, I think I sold it on my my oh. first stall at Portobello Road. Yeah. The needs must. I was going to say I've got something you sold me from Portobello Road thirty years ago. Oh, can I have it back? Is it that plate? Oh, I've got that too. But the first thing I bought was a pair of funny shaped wine glass coolers, and they're really nice. And so it's about thirty years. Yeah, and there's a funny plate I bought from you then. Yes. They haven't changed in their appearance at all. They've endured. Good. Well, at least he's, he's told you the real stuff then. Oh, yes. <laughs> you touch and go in those days. Well, I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned breakages, fragments, things also that could be set on tables. And, and Adrian, you weren't talking about a, a porcelain service for use, I don't think. But, no. but, the, but the idea, of course, that, that to some degree, some of these objects and many of these objects are functional objects. There's something very everyday about things made out of ceramics. We all have them. We all use them every day. We eat off them, put flowers in them. Sometimes they might be of a higher quality or whatnot. But what is it that transforms this ubiquitous material into some of the greatest artworks, most highly prized artworks that have been known to man historically? Well, most vessels do have a nominal functional purpose, uh, teapots for drinking tea out of, but frankly, the great teapots of Sèvres or Meissen were rarely used. I think they were objects of great status. I think if Madame de Pompadour came to tea, you you, you might get out your, your prize service, but very, very rarely. And and you see that because the, the condition that these pieces survive in, you know, a great piece of 18th century Sèvres is very often totally unrubbed. And one of the things that is vulnerable, actually, is, is the gilding. And you can see that these pieces have never been used. So they, they have a vestigial sort of functional purpose, but it's almost hardly the point anymore. They're more like sculptures in the room, aren't they? They're objects in the room rather than your first choice of utensil. Frankly, there are metal vessels you can bash around and if they get dented, you'd take the dent out and because that's not the case with porcelain you save the porcelain for a special measured occasion when you know you're gonna use it well or it's too good to use but errol are you also interested in terms of not dealing only in porcelain but but historical pottery and different types of wares sometimes the the use that has been made of a of a piece as interesting to you as its appearance Yes, I guess it is. I think when you're talking about sort of, well, say, medieval pieces or, or English pottery of the 17th and 18th century, I mean, these are sort of more vernacular objects. And it's wonderful to get the sense of what and where these were used. It could have been a sort of Shakespearean tavern or something like this. And that's important. But I think a lot of the, the, the finest wares were made so almost like sort of Kunstkammer objects for, for patrons. One thing that's very strange is what has survived, and disproportionately, the really fine things have survived, because these have been treasured. The plates used to eat your lunch from in a tavern, those haven't survived, and actually are very rare and sought after in many ways. They've become part of the archaeological record rather than necessarily the artistic record. Yes, absolutely, and, you know, and interesting in their own right. Yeah, amusingly, we have an artist named Bauke de Vries, who's Dutch but lives in London, but he has a source from Delft, the city where so much earthenware comes from in the Netherlands, somebody who collects broken shards of Delftware from the ground in Delft and makes sculptures using many, many of these different broken pieces into an object. And it's quite fascinating to have 18th century, broken, simple 
used wares found in the ground, which is basically where they go. People didn't take them very far away. They got rid of rubbish quite close to home. And on building sites and locations like that, these things are found. And there's always the character down the road who, oh, he'll have them. And they end up in the hands of a contemporary artist these days, making things very, very much based on what originally they were. But let's uh, move on to think about this sense of We've talked a little bit about how inexhaustible the field of talking about pottery and clay and ceramics might be. For each of you, with your special interests, would you say that the entire world of ceramics has been something that, that you've wanted to explore? Are you, are you always hungry to know more about different ceramic traditions? Adrian? Well, well, I would say Errol is the one who really, really, really is a walking encyclopedia, although he might not say it himself. I am a very, very limited breadth of knowledge, but I can normally place something in a country in a century and then run because I won't know more than that. But over to the encyclopedia. This is one of Errol's things. He really is. Well, actually, I do love this, the great sort of the overview of ceramics. And I'm always trying to find sort of new areas. And you mentioned in your introduction sort of Mexican colonial pieces, which is something I knew probably nothing about 10 or 12 or 15 years ago. But it's become a, a particular interest. So that's opened up a, a whole new world for me. I mean, I used to do a lot of Chinese. I do rather less. But, you know, we, we visit Japan. I occasionally make a foray into Africa, but sort of, you know, very, very little of that uh, so far. But I'd like, it's an area I'd like to explore. In terms of being a dealer, if you put things in front of people, they see them and they think about collecting them. If they don't see objects, potential collectors, characters like us are collectors, but then we sell on to others. What you see is what you start to get interested in. And so our duty as dealers, especially at public shows like Masterpiece, to go thinking about things that are slightly unusual, of identifiable quality and things that we can talk about. And it's just great. People love to see something that's slightly unexpected, but understandable when you get to discuss it. And that's the other great thing is we stand there discussing these things. And Errol mentioning, you know, continents of the world and countries of the world. It's also centuries that come off the production of ceramics in, in, in each of these centres he's mentioned. The thing that draws me is is the opportunity to handle and something that one can do at art fairs frequently. How important would you each say handling is to the study of ceramics and the appreciation and understanding of them. Let me ask you first, Adrian. Errol and I were talking the other day, and it's crucially important because no matter how much you know or you don't know, when you feel an object, you start feeling its balance, weight, thickness, things like that. And when you know too much about a field and you have something in your hands with your eyes shut, let's say, it sometimes isn't what you expect it to be. And yet, it is what it is, something you can understand. It's all crucial. I think it's a very seductive part of it, of the enjoyment of the object, but also it tells you a huge amount. If something's like super heavy compared to every single other one you've handled, you have to question why. It doesn't mean it's going to be correct in its place in history or incorrect, but it's different. And it's that is the sort of experience that can help you identify objects. But on the first handling of an object for somebody who's just got their hands on it I think it's brilliant and I think it's brilliant to try things sometimes where you actually are not with your eyes open your eyes are shut and you're getting a feel of an object contemporary objects are often maybe a little more tactile than historic objects which are aiming to be terribly finely made 
but that's no, it's a very important part of it. Errol, um, Adrian described you as a walking encyclopedia of ceramic yeah. history previously. Are, are your hands also a, a manual encyclopedia or, or a manual, I suppose, of ceramics? Well, you, you have to use your hands with ceramics. You, you pick up anything. You pick up a teapot. You, you, you turn it around. You look at the inside, it, the foot rim. The, you hold it up to the light. You, you do funny things. You touch it to your teeth to see if it clinks and if it's not restored and uh, odd things like that. I mean, and some things are warmer than others. Hard paste can be quite sort of cold. A, a soft paste can be a little bit warmer, perhaps. Yeah, there is this sort of hierarchy of materials in a sense. You know, we, we go from earthenware to, to stoneware to porcelain. But in the hands of a great, you know, earthenware in the hands of Madeleine Adundo or something can be as refined and, and as beautiful as anything or, or so can a, a Greek vase, an attic vase, which is actually technically a very similar sort of thing. So there's nothing we don't look down on, on earthenware in, in any way. But porcelain you know, has a special refinement, it is true. You, you mentioned techniques, and I, I wondered if we could just dwell on that for a second, thinking about how far, obviously, artists have great knowledge of, of the mysteries of the kiln and of glaze and what does what. Adrian, for instance, Kate Malone, who, who you represent, has an extraordinary glaze library in, in her studio. How important, though, is it for people trying to appreciate ceramics rather than perhaps making them to start to build that type of knowledge? It's the result that really matters, actually, on that level. So I think you just have to learn to enjoy some things that you're not good at doing yourself. There's another side to ceramic making, which I always emphasize, which is incredibly like cooking. And a lot of people who enjoy eating are not good cooks. So it sort of fits in the same way. You you put materials together, you fire them in an oven, a kiln, and you end up with an object. But so the most important thing about contemporary artists, I do believe, is that they should leave their mark for having a visual vocabulary. That could be shape, colour, all sorts of innovations that make them a unique artist. And Kate Malone, you mentioned, has done a very scientific research project for about 30 years into glazing. She experiments, she tests, tests and tests. That involves not just a colour, it involves how it spreads, its thickness, its ability to form droplets in a kiln, all sorts of issues about how it physically moves in a kiln, let alone its actual colour and its crystalline structure. So every artist should be doing that. I don't believe many works of art are made by artists that we respect where you can actually see the raw material they purchase still looking like the raw material. It has to have gone through a process. So technique is supremely important in the creativity. And in contemporary terms, I think innovation might be extremely desirable, but there are many, many techniques. Errol mentioned throwing, throwing on a wheel earlier with a lump of clay being raised up. People have been throwing mechanically, electrically driven for centuries. And like Errol said, he could find that difficult. I find it impossible. But people now can make a thrown object, which is totally innovative, using a century-old technique and many other techniques. Errol, you discussed this hierarchy, earthenware, stoneware and porcelain. And let's go to the top of the tree and talk a little bit more about porcelain, which, after all, has been one of the most challenging processes historically to get right. What is it, do you think, that, that gave it its historical allure? What is it that 
led to the diagnosis of porcelain sickness, porcelain krankheit in collectors such as Augustus the Strong. Well, you see, he, he had a great alchemical laboratory and a great alchemical library. And ceramics came out of that. And all these great princes, you know, dabbled in alchemy. And it is an alchemical process when you fire and you transmute this sort of raw clay into something brilliant, translucent, white and then you enamel it and you you have fired enamels that have been through a kiln at 900 degrees or 1300 degrees or whatever it is they can be like rubies and emeralds and i think in that baroque period there was very little that was brilliantly brilliantly white and porcelain came along and another thing about handling porcelain is that the huge variety amongst the different whites there are really 50 shades of white and many many more and there are certain ceramic bodies. I mean, Vincennes is one, and Meissner of around 1730 is another, that achieve a whiteness, which I don't think has ever been achieved in any other medium. And if you think of that in the 18th, early 18th century, that was like a, a sort of burst of light in a, in a Baroque interior, something very matched only by jewels and rock crystal. It was something very special. And if you think about these kings of Saxony, kings of these other countries, France, a place like that, they had everything they wanted coming towards them. I mean, they really were in control of their nation and their environment. And yet coming from somewhere way over the other side of the globe were these white porcelain objects. And I'm wondering, Errol, did they realise that they weren't all new? There was a history of making porcelain that stretched back some centuries. In the 18th century, what were they aware of? I think probably not very much. And I think mm-hmm. it, it only took scholars in the late 19th century to actually work out a realistic chronology of Chinese porcelain. I think there was some vague notion of, of that it had been around for a long time. Yeah, but they sure weren't able to make it in Europe. And you can, you know, you're Mr. Top Person in your country and everything can happen here. But they didn't know how to do these things. Objects were coming from the other side of the world. And it fascinated them to try and catch up with that. Frustrated them too, that, you know, someone like Louis XIV or Augustus the Strong, it was frustrating for them to think there was some great potentate the other side of the world who Mm. could produce these incredible silks and this porcelain. And, you know, they they struggled to to achieve that, which they they did eventually. Something both of you have touched on, which strikes me about the mystery of this material, porcelain, is that human ability somehow to transform something very raw into something very special that nonetheless, Errol, you said, almost seems like a jewel, almost seems like something that would occur naturally and and be squirreled away somewhere deep under the earth. It's the opportunity to surprise us with a material that has had human intervention. And and thinking about human intervention, uh, it's a question for you, Adrian, really, thinking about how far contemporary artists are using porcelain specifically and still able to surprise us with this this extraordinary mythological almost material. Yes, um, I think there's plenty of surprise. You made me at first think, because you were mentioning raw materials, I can remember standing in an artist studio in Adelaide, Australia, Kirsten Coelho's, watching her unpacking French Limoges porcelain from packaging recently shipped from France. And about a month later, I'm standing in Wiltshire looking at another artist, Andrew Wicks, using southern ice porcelain from 
Tasmania. And in fact, he's now using European porcelains because they're all realizing it's crazy burning energy to send these things around the world. But for starting point, raw materials are incredibly fluid these days and accessible in remote places. And that's something that's probably unique in history. In the past, you would have used what was more locally available. And that caused differences. But for the onlooker, for the the end user, it's this human ability to be inventive. And human invention is just such a fertile subject. It does rely on a certain level of education, whether that's one-to-one education or serious art schools education. And we must never forget that if no one is taught how to do things, there will be problems in the future with continuity. People pick up on techniques that have been lost, but it's not continuity. And I think that's a very important part, isn't it? That, um, Errol, everything that you handle from every century is going to be a product of a degree of continuity between human beings. Yes, and it's fascinating to follow it through history. You, know, you can see how uh, Romans invented a sort of lead glaze and that continued. It disappeared in the Dark Ages effectively and then it was rediscovered and through the Islamic world. I mean, I love all these interactions that you get, how, how the, the, the great Islamic potters of the 12th and 13th century brought it back to Spain, where it re-entered the sort of European story. And of course, this technology was absolutely the cutting edge technology of its time. It was near the silicon chips of the 13th century. And you see an Alhambra vase made in in the sort of 14th century in Nazareth, Spain. What are they, sort of five foot high? I mean, the firing of something like that would be incredibly challenging today. I mean, how they achieved it is a a wonder, a technical wonder. I'm smiling because I always say that it's the Gulfstream jets of those eras because a silicon chip is probably available to rather more people in their spending power nowadays. But they are these high technological achievements, but really for the top end of spending. And they were secrets. You know, the, the, the different enamels and the, the fact that you could you know, produce a sort of wonderful red out of colloidal gold or something was a closely guarded secret which you shared with with, with you know, a handful of people. Talking of closely guarded secrets, just moving on to think quickly about if collectors are shopping for ceramic objects, uh, wares or sculptures, what do they need to be on the lookout for in terms of condition? You've already said that obviously this is a very durable material, but are, are there any particular tips you would give? Well, it's, it's wonderful that you don't have to, your climate control is not a concern. Anything that's been fired you know, at a thousand degrees isn't going to, the weather's not going to disrupt it, nor, as I said, are, are weevils and bugs. The condition is important and, and you know, modern restoration is something you have to look out for. Also fakes. Actually, fakes, I think, are not too big a problem in our area. They are in Chinese porcelain. It's a, it's a sort of rather a huge problem. The best fakes in our area are really the, the 19th century ones, which still sometimes cause, cause problems. And there's been one or two you know, instances of fakery, but really, you know, condition is something to look out for. I love to, to, to think that I'm looking at the same surface that was um, looked at when it was made. So I don't like things being sort of overpainted or anything like that. I'd rather leave have a honest crack or a chip. Can I say, when you were asking that, you were saying, what should people be looking out for? The closest guarded secret is honesty. And honesty out of the dealer or the person who's describing an object to you, if you're thinking of buying it. And there are interesting honesty systems in our world. A lot of us porcelain dealers are very sort of social animals with other dealers 
scholars, collectors, enthusiasts, and that means we're exposed. We're not working in strange, secluded ways. We're all on top of each other. We're on Instagram. We're on each other's websites. We can see what each other is up to. And then when we come to a fair like Masterpiece, all our objects are vetted by people who we actually really deeply respect. And sometimes they have a point about a piece on my stand and I go, oh, thanks, I hadn't thought about that. I think we'll put that in the cupboard. You know, it's, it's great to have the help of somebody pointing out if you have overlooked something yourself. But when it comes down to that honesty, if someone's thinking of buying something and there are three known examples, one is totally smashed, one has a scratch and one is perfect they probably should have three different values. But you just need to know if there are these other ones out there and what their prices are. And it's all part of the honesty system and and the knowledge. Collecting these days is normally given plenty of time for you to email and discuss in person with other people. Wouldn't you say, Errol? You know, we, we very much discuss our objects, don't we? And transparency, and you, you sell a lot to museums, as, as I do, and, and transparency now is just the sort of the, the first condition. You actually, you generally start by putting all your cards on the table. You say, I bought it and it was cost me nothing. I now want such and such for it. And you have to make a case why it's more valuable than, than the price you bought it, because they can find out anyway. Well, I suppose porcelain itself is not a transparent material, but has been a translucent material. And clay is perhaps one of the more honest materials in its earthiness. So on that note, I'm going to draw this to a close and say thank you very much to Adrian Sassoon and Errol Manners for sharing their expertise with us today. Thanks, Thomas. Thank you very much indeed. You've been listening to Encountering Beauty, a podcast brought to you by Masterpiece London. Masterpiece Online takes place from the 23rd to the 27th of June, and the fair will return to the Royal Hospital Chelsea in the summer of 2022. Head to www.masterpiecefair.com for more information.